Hey everybody, welcome to episode 117 of the Apolog Podcast. My name is Simon Head and I am your host. Today's podcast is brought to you in part by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook, download, and a 30-day free trial by going to audibletrial.com slash There's over 180,000 titles to choose from for your mobile device. See, I'm shortening it. Now it's your mobile device. If it's mobile and it's a device, it will take Audible. Audible is a books on tape website. It's part of Amazon. And you can you can get any book. There's like 180,000 books, which I think is all the books. That's right. All the books are on M- are on Audible. So go to audibletrial.com slash Apolog and get your free 30-day free trial and your free download by going there. This episode is also brought to you in part by my Amazon affiliate program, You, as a Canadian now, can go faster, shop faster, and help the show out faster by going to apolog.ca slash Amazon. It will take you directly to the Amazon website. And and anytime you shop on Amazon, you can bookmark that link and it will support the show. If you're from the United States or the UK, you can go to apolog.ca and on the homepage, you can see on the right side, there's links to your country for to help the show out. It really does helps the show, and I see it, you know, and it helps with my with my you know hosting fees, equipment upgrades, all these sort of things. And you can, like I said, support the show, cost you no extra money. If you're interested in supporting the show on a monthly basis, you can go to patreon.com slash You can pledge as much or as little as you want on a monthly basis to help with my hosting and gas fees. There's a few rewards. If you go above a certain amount, you will get rewards. So check that out. Go to patreon.com slash and check it all out. All right. Inside Recorders is my uh, my recording studio. Inside Recorders is not just a place to go and record and set up and you know make a record, but Inside Recorders also deals with online mixing and mastering. You can send your recorded album to Inside Recorders and it will be mixed and mastered to add a professional touch to your recording. There's all sorts of other services available. So if you want to actually sell your music on the, on the site, you can actually sell there. You can open up your own store. Um, go to Insight Recorder slash rates to find out what the actual hourly recordings times and costs are. But you can also go to insightrecorders.com slash contact and get in touch with me and we'll put you up with a store and we will try to just cut out this whole Bandcamp an iTunes thing by making your own website. Okay. Go to applog.ca slash shop to purchase uh, a t-shirt or buy my band's Foursquare's discography for $20. I'm going to be putting some, something else up there soon. And it has to do with 3D printing. It's got nothing to do with podcasting or neither actually does the discography. It'll be my little shop. So go applog.ca slash shop and check out what is there for sale. On iTunes, don't forget to rate and review the show. Don't forget to subscribe. Give it some stars. You can follow me on Twitter at SimonHead6666. And if you're interested in checking up on news and new guests, go to Facebook.com slash Pod. I try to update it at least once or twice a week. So if you want to be a part of that little train, jump on board. Toot, toot. That's all the bits. Today's guest is... Is a is a lighting costume and set designer. His name is Nick Blay, and he we met about six months ago, and working on with the same show, and we'd worked together. He also sent me a referral to do some three D printing for a, 
another theater company. And that's, we were talking, we talk a little bit about that. And that's sort of what the Canadian theater and theater industry in general is all about. You meet people, they hook you up with other people, then you move on, do work, and then carry on. And the good thing about that business is that if you're a good person and relatively okay and professional, you'll keep working. And if you're not, you end up getting pushed aside and you don't work anymore. And Nick works eight shows a year or something. He started off like doing like 14 shows a year. And if anybody understands that, that's a huge endeavor. That's a lot of work that goes into it. Nick is a solid person, a good person. Uh, we had a good conversation. It went on for about 70 odd minutes. Hey, everybody. Here he is. My friend, my working compatriot, Nick Blay on the Apple Podcast. I grew up in rock and roll. So I grew up in punk rock and rock and roll. And, and lighting was sort of like the, uh, usually the last thing, <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it still is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was more blatantly that way. And the other thing, I don't know how theater, I'm pretty sure theater has their departmental issues and woes. But it seemed way more amp- amped up in, in rock and roll world that uh, there was a lot more um, animosity between lighting and sound and when I got into theater 15 years ago, I learned a lot about how lights were done by watching the guy beside me do lights and developed an appreciation right. for it. So you're actually relatively young in in this business, aren't you? Well, I would say, uh, I would say it's yeah, compared to, compared to who, but yes, uh, I've been doing uh, of all of the elements, the design elements, I've been doing lighting the longest. Um, I started, I started when I was 14 uh, and started lying about my age when I was, uh, well, 15. <laughs> not, not that you would have known. Uh, because, uh, yeah, I really I, I liked it, and I wanted to do more of it, but nobody would hire a, you know, a kid to do it. So, um, yeah, so that's when I started you know, down the road of lighting. I started freelancing as a technician and getting little designs for fringe-type shows, independent projects, and stuff like that. And then I just uh, I became a house tech of a venue when I was uh, 17 years old. Um, and it was, it was great because I, I got to figure out my own ways of doing things, and a couple people had sort of helped me along the way. But uh, I got to start really quite early um, in, the, in the field. So I've been, yeah, so I've been doing lighting for... Uh, well, actually, yeah, about 15, 15 years, hmm. in some capacity, anyway. Yeah, relatively speaking, that that is that is a young that is a young time to start. You, most people just like have paper routes and stuff, and uh, you know, <laughs> right. it, or, or do part time jobs. But you kind of had your career sort of set at a very early age, by the sound of it. Yeah, I mean, I would say that's fair. I. Uh, I didn't really grow up in like a theatrical household or, or, or anything. My father was a police officer and my mom was a flight attendant. 
but I got involved somehow in like the school plays and and yeah by the time I I hit the age of you know uh, 13 14 I was starting to sit down at at, at boards or, or or build sets or or act I was still acting in shows then um, and uh, and yeah I, I decided pretty much then that I was going to be involved in some in some way mm. in theater and and then I went and did an apprenticeship at Alberta Theatre Projects, and I got to meet some designers, and I thought, well, these guys these guys have the best job, really, of anybody. They get to be creative, but uh, don't, uh, don't have to be really on stage. Um, they get to sort of decide what the whole show is about in a weird way. So I mm-hmm. thought, yeah, I thought these guys are cool. I want to be one of these guys. Did you, did you start off as wanting to act, or is, or is it always, always technician? Well, I think it's it's the only way to sort of get into theater through the sort of school system is to act. Because, I mean, you, a lot of schools have drama programs, but they're not tech-oriented at all. So, like, if you're at all interested in theater, you sort of have to start acting. And, and I enjoyed it, and it was fun. I'm still friends with some of the people I met then. But, uh, but I realized fairly quickly that uh, while I enjoyed it, it wasn't... It wasn't my bag. It wasn't what I was great at. Uh, I was much better looking at the whole thing yeah. than actually being an intimate part of the onstage. Yeah. Is was there? A, yeah, because for me, like getting into music, I was into music ever since I was a kid. But I found that doing sound was a good way to stay close to it, as, as well as not have to like get a real job later on in life. That I could kind of have a trade. And um, right, yeah, the closest thing that I can compare it to is that you have like those people that weld be- beautiful things with metal and, and a welding rod, but they learn yeah. how to weld first. You know what I mean? So you go out and you do totally. welding jobs and then you can learn how to be an artist um, welding. <laughs> it's my horrible analogy. Well, it's not a bad analogy. It's a pretty good analogy. But No, the- it's, it's, a, it's a great analogy. I mean, what pays, and, and it's a good um, analogy for, you know, how we make a living also. I mean, you... Like those welders, I don't think they pay their bills with, uh, you know, with their their art, especially when they're first starting out. They're doing contracts, mm-hmm. you know, they're welding um, tractors. And you know, I've got a I've got a friend who's a who's a designer who started out as a machinist, mm-hmm. and like she makes way more money working as a machinist fixing exactly that tractors and engines and stuff like that mm-hmm. uh than she does doing any sort of theater but it's sort of given her the skills to like really understand steel as as a as a material and welding it and, and yeah. stage mechanics and it's quite it's quite interesting yeah it takes a neat kind of eye to understand something where <clears throat> you know you're looking at light and I still look at it sort of peripherally. Like I look at it and go, "Oh, that's good." If I, if I don't notice it, then that's good lights, in my opinion. Um, right. You know, I I worked uh, some some operas when I used to work at the Living Arts Center, and the, the lighting designer was was there like all throughout everything, doing and tweaking. And I remember uh, the light technician going, "Oh, he's a tweaker," and I didn't know what, like, you know what I mean? Like my eyes were open yeah. about, like, "Oh, there's actually more to just." pointing a light at something, you're developing a mood, you're developing a scene, you're putting eyes to the direction that people don't even know that they're going there. And yeah, it's, it's a talent, man. Well, well, people like people often think that, you know, when you do the, um, when you do the box set kind of 
lighting designs, the living room drama, they think, oh, it's not going to have very many cues. Um, often those shows are actually more more challenging because you're doing really small refinements. And once you start down the road of like, I want to accent this moment a little bit or or bring more attention to this person who's not speaking in the back, but I want our audience to look at that person. Once you start down that road, you'll find that you have you have cues that go along where wherever anybody moves or, or, or anybody speaks for any length of time, you've got a cue there and a cue to restore back to what it was before. And I always use the example, I was doing um, a living room drama, it's a David Mamet play called Race, um, sorry, a courtroom kind of drama. And it's, uh, it's four lawyers sitting around a conference table for the two hours of the show. Um, but the, uh, the, I mean, it's a show about race, so two of the lawyers are black and two of the lawyers are white. And it's a really sort of inherent challenge in lighting design is creating um, the focus of where you want the audience to look. And when you've got people of different skin tones, and you always do, especially with doing theater in Canada, you don't, you don't want your, your secondary, you know, Caucasian character to be drawing focus from the you know the person speaking, especially in 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 race. One of the main lawyers is 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 black, and you you have to sort of you have to spend all of your time balancing. And I found that that show was one of the most challenging shows I've ever done with lighting because anytime somebody moved, I was taking I was taking bringing up the lights like in their path so that it, it looked even because exactly yeah. you don't want people to notice every time there's a cue. Yeah. Um, and then you know the in this example the you know the white lawyer would come around behind him and I'd be taking all those lights down in succession to sort of again <laughs> keep it looking normal. Even. Yeah. And even yeah. Um, it's 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 often easier to do you know the wham bang musicals or dance numbers or that kind of stuff because it's you're making broad stroke offers to a, a medium that lends itself well to mood shifts and changes and and the the show that you and I did together uh, was a show that had a lot of cues but that's because there was so much content mm. um, and it was we sort of made broad stroke offers of like wham this is gonna be great it won't be perfect but it will you know it'll help Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't really get away with that when you do the refined when you do the refined work. You have to be a little more, um, I guess, tasteful, mm-hmm. uh, and you have to minimize your choices a little bit so that they don't jar jar the audience. Yeah, of course. And like what we said before, you don't want to take away from what's happening on stage because of if someone noticed, you know, and I think I'd notice it too, that it, you're right, it is harder to light black people or darker skinned people. So, <laughs> I mean, the whole idea that you're trying to like make it work, they, the, the tricky part is trying to make everybody on your team, like the guy who's sort of pushing the buttons for you to sort of get on board with that, you right? Like, you're trying to explain yeah. this. I'm sure it was a lot of conversation in that particular situation, like what you're trying to do is you're not trying to make work for, you know, because we know sometimes technicians can be a, a little crusty and a little hard to work with and, you know, a little been there, done that, and, you know. Right. And it's tough to try and explain situations like that, that, you know, that's a pretty cut and dried thing where someone would probably get on board with that. But Yeah, and, and I think it's it's usually, uh, yes, you sort of come in, in contact with, with technicians, especially on 
on larger crews and older houses and stuff like that where they are used to doing the same thing over and over again and they stick around because they, you know, they like the like the check. But but I find the person that you get on board and it's often easier to get on board is your is your operator, especially in lighting, because mm-hmm. you because um, I mean usually the shows that I design are exciting in some way. Like yeah. um uh, so it, it's it but it's talking to them early on and saying like this is what I'm gonna try and do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may work out, it may not. Um, if it doesn't, then I'll switch my game plan and and but uh, but a conversation with your operator before you sort of get going and start barking numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same with any element really. Oh, before yeah. you walk into a shop and start saying, oh, here are my plans. Let me know when it's done. Mm-hmm. Giving them the intention of sort of what you're going for. Um, yeah, it does. It does get them a little bit more invested, and mm-hmm. and well, sometimes they're invested, and sometimes they're not. But if it, but if they're not, you know, then how to frame your conversations with them. Like if they just want to get it done, that's okay. You expedite your work and and the communication that you have to say, okay, I'm going to make this as easy or simple to execute and give them all the information right away because they can handle it. Um, and they'll just do it. And if they follow the plans, they'll do it right. And that's sort of my responsibility as designer too, is that it can be executed by uh, by the plans. Anybody mm-hmm. looking at the plans can do it. Yeah. Uh, but it's certainly more fun when it's collaborative. Yeah. And the, well, you know, there's two things I was going to say. One, one was that if you work with a an operator who is, say, a 30-year veteran, you can get two types. You can get a veteran that is like, sees a guy like you come and go, oh my God, this is great. I get to do something that's artistic rather than shitty dance comps. Awesome. Right. Then you get the guy who's like, oh God, I just want the paycheck and blah, 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 blah. And, and you want what? But they're probably pretty good at all the programming bits for the better part. Yeah. And to have to like... You could probably walk in the room two minutes before, like the two minutes after you've walked in the room, you can go, oh, okay, this is what type of week or two weeks I'm going to be dealing with. And totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a talent too, because you're going to take that. And there might be somebody who's younger than you who knows nothing, but it's like, oh my God, I'm learning something. Or, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's a few different type of people out there. Totally. And 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 honestly there's a time and a place for both for both types. Mm-hmm. Um, cuz sometimes a show will be really like under the gun time-wise and you want to like and maybe you're not being as experimental with your process and you know just because for the lack of time mm. you're going to have to walk in and record, you know, 10 cues every 4 minutes, which is like which is kind of what we ended up doing on the on the yeah. show that you and I worked together yeah. on. We you know we ended up recording about eight hundred cues in an afternoon. Um, thanks to Joey Picano, Mr. Super th- Operator. Thanks to Joey Picano. But before we had before we had Joey, yeah, um, I was. I mean, we you and I had conversations about like how else can we do this show? Yeah, with what we have, you know, okay we probably won't get the queuing time that we need, so maybe we run it live. Like, that's what's kind of fun about about the the crunch time of theater is that stuff goes wrong, and it's super stressful at the time, mm-hmm. but it, it encourages, like, yeah, it encourages a different way of thinking. Uh, and, you know, I never ran a show live like that before, or, or not 
we're not committed to like, okay, this is how we're going to run the show. Yeah. But at that point, it seemed like the only option. And in, in experimenting and trying to figure out how that would work, you know, I learned a little bit more about the board and then, and we actually made some really good progress. And then when Joey actually came onto the project, it was, we'd already done so much experimenting that it made doing the levels really, really quickly and actually recording them in, um, really quite fast and quite easy. And it also gave Joey a really good understanding of um, the the style of the lighting design, like what his yeah. paint box was to sort of play with. Yeah. Because, you know, I... Because the show wasn't perfect when we left. In fact, I don't think a lighting design ever is perfect. Um, but that's just my opinion. You can always work on it forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and opening comes, and it's like, you have to leave then. Mm-hmm. Um because otherwise you'll just stay forever. But it but it gave him the ability to see what I was going for, and and he was actually able to do refinements um, live during the show. Which, as as a lighting designer who has to leave and go on to the next project, it's really comforting to leave it in the hands of somebody like that, like Joey. Yeah. Well, yeah. To explain to the to the people listening, Joey is our he's a twenty something year old lighting lighting operator who is going to be the first person... Well, he wasn't the first person to leave, actually. Danny, uh, our other our carpenter, he's gone to, off to join Cirque, so he's off at Cirque now. Oh. But Joey's the kind of guy who, who gets it, and his whole family does lights. I don't know if he told you much about him, but oh, his, his brother does lights, his dad does lights for the CBC. Like they've, His whole family are lighting operators, so... He grew Amazing. up knowing nothing better, that nothing more, and uh, <laughs> he's very talented. And uh, it'll be a shame to see him go when he does go, because he will go. You know, that's just sort of that's the theater the I work of, in. Yeah, right. It's well, it's the nature of people who are 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 good. They don't they don't stay in one place for too long, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's it's interesting working with him because he does he does things. You're like, oh, this is you know, it's it's trying to take like the hor- most horrible of horrible shows, not your show, but most shows. <laughs> no, that's... <laughs> most that's shows. Fair. That's fine. And, and just trying to make it into something. And, you know, that's, yeah. that's, that's a pretty cool thing, and that's going to be staying power. And I'm th- I, you know what? Everybody walked away learning something on that whole gig anyways. And it was, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, did, I don't know if somebody told you, but somebody accidentally plugged in the lighting board into our sound network um, uh, in the other theater. And the whole oh, PA yeah. system went down. It was distorted. Oh, and we didn't figure it out. Actually, Ryan, the the, uh, the um, sound operator, figured it out. We lucked out. Because it yeah. was like we were putting up portable speakers and stuff like that. And, you know. But um, the, the fact that, you know, you're compensating is probably something you learn later in life as a operator, too. Like, you're like, I'm just going to, I'm not going to compromise what my, my, your design is but at the same time you have to realistically set your boundaries as to where okay when do i just stop when is it time to finish yeah i mean it's it's um i don't want this to sound pessimistic at all but like design is is always a compromise um and that's just because it's uh, and having more money and more time that doesn't really solve the problem it just changes the process um, it's always a compromise because you're always up against conflicting opinions of, of between director, designer, um, between comfort of actors, and then money and time and venue and uh, and it's a designer's ab- ab- ability, one of their strongest abilities, to uh, efficiently compromise and prioritize. So yeah, this this one scene 
okay, I want to do 200 cues for this three-minute musical number because that musical number is the, you know, the heart of the show. And if that means that I don't get to do all of those living room cues that, you know, brighten up a chair every time somebody sits down, if, you know, if I don't get to do all of those, that's okay because I've got to set the sort of priorities. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but the, the reality of it being a live performance is you, one day you'll, you'll, focus a light a little bit to the left because that's where that person is going and then the next day they'll go a little bit more to the right um, and they'll be a, a little bit farther back or a little bit farther forward and you just tweak all these levels and these refinements um, but they change they change every night so you do the best you can you try to cover all of your bases but uh, I am a believer of, of in, barring any catastrophe um, opening night is like it's my job to get the show ready for opening, and then I and then I have to walk away. I have to let it live with sort of what we've all created. Yeah, yeah, and that's a tricky one because you're right. Everything changes. You could stay there. You could stay there the whole time, and you could say, "Oh, well, you know." And by that, by the time closing night happens, I think huh, I so many elements to theater that makes things work. Um, you know, there's so many elements, and I think that's sort of a no-duh moment. Like, everybody must realize that. But the fact that lights and sound and, and the props and the flies and the audience getting tuned in, you know, these are all things that make an amazing show. I'm. It's yeah. hard to make all that click in, what, oh, two weeks? A week, maybe? You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it's, uh, well, and the timelines aren't getting any easier, really. It's It's... I mean, rehearsals have kind of always been the same. It's always like three to four weeks of rehearsal. It seems to be across the board, like small show, medium show, big show. That's kind of the the average that anybody is sort of willing to spend on on actors. But uh, you know, tech periods are continuing to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, and what used to be you know the standard you know week tech week in reality is a lot more is a lot closer to three days now and the ones that were three days are now one day <laughs> um, I'm you know I'm working dealing with that right now as a show has got to you know go in and do that hang focus levels cue to cue in the evening like that's a lot of work yeah. <laughs> to happen in one day and a lot of different parts of your brain that you kind of have to access uh, all at the same time, and then uh, have some energy at the end to actually watch what you've made. Mm -hmm. um, it's yeah, it's a challenge. The more departments involved in one day, the trickier it is to make all that work synchronously, harmoniously. I I totally agree. Because when one like when one lags, the other ones have to pick up the pace, and the ultimately the end of the day is the end of the day um, for most parts. You know, sometimes right. people are like, we can go all night. And you're like, and you're like, no, we aren't. <laughs> That's what I say. Yeah. But the enthusiasm is great, but it's still, everybody needs to stick to that. We're out of here at 10 or we're out of here at 1030. And we're not going to, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to hurt our bodies because we've got to get that extra 20 cues in. We're, we're going to deal, yeah. you know, and that is, that is theater. And unfortunately, budget-based theater, what other, you know, I don't know. You think about it if there's a car company and you're making cars and they're like, uh, we got to, okay, so we'll even ex like change the time to, you have six months to make a car. 
great. You have to start fresh. No new parts, no replacement parts. We're going to put all that car, we're going to put it together, and in six months' time, we're going to drive it down the road. Yeah. Well, you need to have all these things in place. And, and first of all, you couldn't build a car in six months, a prototype right. car. You're essentially making a prototype show um, <laughs> from nothing into something, and then at the end of the time, it all gets put away, and people have awesome memories and things like that. So it's a tricky, tricky business. You know what I mean? Do you, do you find yourself like maybe one day, like feeling a little jaded based on the, on, on the time constraint or is it that is technology allowing this to, um, happen in a shorter period of time? Um, I would say in some ways technology helps with that. Uh, I mean, it, it limits it, I guess, in other ways. So, I mean, just the fact that you and I are able to have this conversation via video and, mm. and recording and all of that stuff, and, and I could turn around and show you what I'm working on right now. That, yeah. like, that kind of techno technological advancement um, has made it possible for more people to work together and in some ways waste less time traveling. Um, I mean, even when I, you know, sort of first started, I wasn't having meetings over Skype. I was driving all over the city. Mm -hmm. and meeting in people's living rooms and, and, and that kind of stuff, which I miss, to be honest. <laughs> I, I really do miss that. Um, but, uh, but, you know, only certain things can be done over the phone or done via Skype. Um, I still do a lot of flying. I still spend a lot of time in the airport, and sometimes um, I'll meet other designers in the airport, uh, especially, like, here in Toronto, um, you know, oh, there's only one day that works for both of us, and we're both going to be in the airport at the same time, so we go an hour early, and we'll do a meeting there. And I kind of like the romanticism of that. Yeah. Um, it, uh, it, yeah, it adds sort of an urgency that, you know, what we're working on is sort of life and death, and we, we have to figure it out in the next three hours. <laughs> um, uh, I, yeah, I kind of, I kind of like that. And I, but I would say that um, one thing, the, the shorter processes... Um, the creative process is quite short now. Um, so whereas I used to build models for every show I did, every every set design I did would have a beautifully painted model, and I would spend a lot of time in, um, in doing it. The truth is companies now, they don't really have the time for it. Um, mm -hmm. They'd rather engage you later, pay you less, and um, and get, well, get your work faster. So it, it means that I've uh, instead of oops uh, instead of doing instead of doing models I do it all digitally now I would say for the most part if I've got a lot of time I'll still build a paper model but um, I'm doing it all with three three D AutoCAD now mm -hmm. so that I can create a rendering create plans and uh, and send them right away instead of waiting for the post yeah. Well, you know, probably in the earlier days, you needed to sort of prove what your concept was. Your proof of concept needed to be more visceral. You needed to look at it and touch it. But as you get sort of get more reputation in the business, they're like, oh, he knows what he's doing. And then they can make a more, maybe an exception too at the same time with your your vision. Like you can explain your vision. Like, you know, when people pitch bad TV shows, you're like, it's like, uh, you know, it's a whale and a dolphin buddy cop show. You know, like, what? You know, you're retarded. Get out of here. Or, you know, you're, you're pitching something that is going to work for, the, for right. the better part. And so that's, I think, too, at the same time, when people want, they want your vision, you're giving it to them. You don't need to go into, like, you know, physical holding your hand objects or 
Yeah, it, it's true. There's a lot more, especially when you're starting out, proof. Uh, you've got to prove yourself. And mm -hmm. I think, well, I think I'm constantly proving myself because I'm constantly working with new people. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but it's true. Once they've seen some of your work, they know that you're going to, gonna, you know, make sure that all the props are, are there or that the ground plan works. They don't need to sort of see all the incarnations of a design. Yeah. Um, you know, I used to bring my sketchbooks to, to meetings and sort of show the process, like, this is how I came up to this design. But again, there's not, that's sort of an extraneous meeting now with most of the people. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, how have you solved the whole show? <laughs> All the problems. Uh, what YouTube did me. you rip it off of? <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah it's, it's like, just show me the final product and I'll love it and it'll be great. Yeah, well, community um, theater and, does that a lot. They'll take, like, like famous light designs from shows they've seen on Broadway on YouTube and say, I want it to look like that. And that's... I just, I just had that. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I just had that about two weeks ago. Somebody, it was like, it was a cold email. They found my, uh, they found my website online and looked me up and, and said, hey, I'm looking for a set design. I want it to look exactly like this. Uh, and they sent me a photo of a set design. And again, with today's technology, I just popped that image into Google, and it took me to the website of the theater in Illinois, and the designer who designed it, and uh, and I sent an email back. I mean, this this person wasn't a, a regular sort of theater performer. It was they were doing a one-time show, and um, and were looking for some advice. And I sent an email back saying, "Well, contact the theater in Illinois and see if it's available." Yeah, that's not really what I do. Yeah, you know, uh, send me the script, and I'll. Uh, and I'll and we'll talk about it more. But yeah. yeah, the the sort of I mean it's with set design especially, I I try to resist projects like that. Yeah. Even if the money is good, just because it, it sets a bad precedent mm. for what the yeah, what the art form is to yeah. me and, and what I think it should be is that, you know, if you want uh, well projection designers actually deal with this a lot. Um I remember there was a, a show um where uh, somebody had dropped out and they asked me to come in and do the projection design for it, and I got a list. I got emailed a list of, and this was before I'd taken the project, I got emailed a list of like, oh, these are all the things we want. And they were all um, really very specific, and they were all basically like, oh, we want a monkey jumping out of a window. And uh, that was just one of the examples. Uh, and I was like, okay, um, it doesn't sound like you're looking for a designer. It sounds like you've decided Carpenter. everything already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you just want somebody to do all of the all of the work, and that's uh, and that's fine. Like we need people to do that that kind of work, but um, the the benefit for doing the the pro these projects is not just the money for getting paid, but it's for the 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 creativity that you you use and the ideas that you come up with and seeing them come to life on stage and I feel like those projects that are very um, prescriptive yeah, sort of take that out of it. So like it's fine to do those projects but they should pay more. Yeah. Because um, yeah. they're not giving you anything else. They're, yeah. they're just asking for your, your grant work. Well if they want something like see when, when we have songwriter we have a songwriters uh, guild that called you know it's SOCAN and if someone performs your song on the radio you get a little chunk of money. But if someone blatantly rips off your Adams Family middle part dance and light yeah. design and set design, 
that person who did the set design is she should be getting a cut or a credit. Credit alone is is tough to give out. Like um, like community theater does it all the time, where it's like, oh, we're gonna do this show and we're gonna basically rip it right off of this YouTube we watched, which was the show that was on Broadway for ten years or whatever. Yeah. So we're gonna take that. So in that little thing you open up, your program, it should have said set design inspired by whoever. Right. And that's yeah. that's a, that's a tricky thing because you're saying you know it, we, we, it's the dying age of of, of artistic freedom. <laughs> you know we're all sort of there. You know where people can blatantly rip shit off. You know whether it be music or or set design or lighting designs. And um, there's not a lot of uh, uh, I don't know recourse. I guess. <laughs> well, it's I think it's. Um... I mean, I think there's, I mean, intellectual property has, like, never been a bigger um, a bigger thing than it is right now. I, I know several of lawyers who specialize in just intellectual property, and I've, I've consulted with them on, on helping us as designers write contracts and things like that. But the truth is, is that the, the short, um, rushed nature of theater, it, you know, it happens so fast and, and then disappears so fast that it's... Uh, yeah, it's it's over before you've noticed that there's a problem. I mean, I had a set design of mine, um, well, set and costume design of mine appear in New Brunswick uh, for a show that I had designed years earlier, and I only heard about it because somebody sent me a message saying, hey, congrats on your New Brunswick award. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what? Uh, and I had no idea that the show had been there, and I had no idea that it was it was going or that, uh, and I didn't get any royalties or anything from it. I didn't know what was happening, and and uh, and I would have loved to know. Um, I mean, the royalties would have been like I don't know. I think I would have gotten eighty bucks out of it or something yeah. like that. It was a really it was one of the first shows I ever designed, and it and I was pleased to saw, see that it went to New Brunswick. But I would have loved to go. I've never been to New Brunswick. Sure, or even just um, to get the yeah, <laughs> even just get the well, just uh, to know about it. Yeah, you know, yeah, the heads up. Um, but you see it all the time with billing. In uh, just in photos, even because anybody can sort of take take photos, and and theaters are a lot more relaxed now about audience members taking photos in the theater. Mm -hmm. um, occasionally, it'll still pop up in a pre-show chat, but it's not the same as say like five or six years ago when ushers would be going and deleting photos mm -hmm. off of people's digital cameras in the house of the theater. They just they're they're out there. There's tons of photos of my sets on 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 Twitter, and and they're usually accompanied by good messages and notes, being like, "Oh, this set is so cool." Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but uh, but a problem with the billing is that theaters do have uh, have sort of developed a routine of crediting the actors in the photo and even the person who's taking the photo, the photographer, uh, with a big beautiful picture of the set in the background and. Um, no credit for the designer who's actually done that. Yeah. Um, so that is something that uh, the Associated Designers of Canada are, are putting more in the forefront of their contracts. I mean, it's always been in there, yeah. but it's always sort of been up to the individual designer to make sure that it's being it's being dealt with. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's on the forefront of all of my personal contracts now. Yeah. That any any photo that has a recognizable portion of the design in it. Um, has you know has my name attached to it because you never know when somebody will see it and go oh I want my mm -hmm. show to look just like that yeah I'm gonna call that guy yeah of course well I go right to the source of course 
Um, exactly. With all I mean all the meta tagging that we have, that's probably something that could be very useful when it comes to getting. If you download a picture, it should be like all the information should be inputted into that before you can upload it to the internet. For that reason, that would probably help out yeah. the, the plight of of that intellectual property. Um, yeah, totally. The other you've heard of Dave Dave Chappelle, right? The Chappelle Show, the comedian. Yeah. He has uh, when he does like gigs. Uh, he actually has little bags with uh, zip ties, and he makes people put their phones inside these little bags. And then at the end of the night, they come back and they zip the tie and take the phone out of the bag and give it back to the to the person. Wow, <laughs> that's harsh, that's crazy. but it works. Nobody ever gets his you know because he goes to like the comedy store just to get work in stuff rather than to like you know do a show and say here it is. So um, he has them put their phones in little bags and then they're essentially, they're like under a bond. And then when you're done, they just give your phone back with the, you know, you can keep your phone, you just can't take any pictures with it. So it's, yeah. a, it's a strange, um, <laughs> you think in this world that we live in now that there would be much more um, open thought to uh, creativity where it seems sometimes it's people sort of look into other things before they can create other things. And that is the history of music. I mean, music, music's been that way for, for, for eons since, you know, people would imitate a little bit of it. But I think we need to be smarter now. I think we just take an essence of a song and then turn it into our song. And then that way you still keep your own artistic freedom or you keep your own artistic view. Same thing with lights. I mean, do, obviously there's good and light, good and bad light designers out there. And, but the ones that sort of take the um, the essence of your show, it's those are the people that need to sort of maybe be called on or ch- put in check. Is that so? What's happening now with like this thing you were talking about before? Well, I mean, I would say it's it's a lot harder to um, prop uh, create a create a sort of a property or define a property of a lighting design mm-hmm. um, because it's. Uh, there's so many parts of it. Like, unless you were to trademark, you know, uh, you created a color, like a Roscoe gel color, mm-hmm. and and um, and said, well, nobody can use this except me. Um, it would be hard uh, to sort of say, well, that lighting design is is mine, especially from a photo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, because there's different there's different color temperatures of even just the camera that took the picture, whether it be an iPhone yeah, or an Android, it's going to look dr- a little different, you know. Yeah, I mean, where where I would say it comes into play more is uh, with with the plot of it, with the system that you sort of create. Um, but even that's hard. Um, like you create a, a system, and that's based on your knowledge or your education in in lighting. Like where uh, I went to school at the U of A in Edmonton, and most of the designers who come out of the U of A have a very similar approach to lighting. We do our plots the same way, mm-hmm. um, or at least the, the base plot the same way. And, and working in different houses, the, uh, it's funny, you'll, you'll meet a head of LX, and that head of LX will be like, oh, you're from the U of A, mm-hmm. or you're from NTS, or you're from this, based on your, your style, like your plot. And a lot of that is, is due to the individual professor that you had who learned it from somebody else, right? Like mm-hmm. the U of A lighting professor has, has been there for 30 years and uh, is still there and, and is pumping out great lighting designers. Um, 
so in, in some ways, every time I create a lighting design, I, I, I feel like, yes, I, I owe her something in that respect. Like, I owe her that because her method works. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, that's not to say that there's not massive amounts of creativity because, as you said, there are, like, the temperatures of lights and, and, and colors and combinations, but also the content that they're hitting um, is, is also a really big part of it. Um, but I would say, uh, but I would say that the plot, like if you, when you create a system to light a show um, or any show, really, like uh, people who design house plots for their own theater that they work in, um, that's uh, like as a designer, if you did that for a specific show and it got used in a bunch of other shows, a lot of those other shows would have similarities to the one you created. Mm-hmm. So I do like to know when I do a project if if the lighting design is, like, if I'm using the house plot or if I'm creating a new uh, house plot while I'm there, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's going to be used or restored um, back to its original or whatever, and it's not so that I can do a money grab and say, oh, well, if you're going to use it, I want more money. Um, But it's it's more just to to sort of know, um, just sort of of know what's happening with it. Because often I, you know, will design so that if there are extra lights, I'll leave them up because they might be helpful to that next person. I'm a lot less precious about about lighting designs in terms of the, the system of them because I feel like I do a good a, a good system. Mm-hmm. I do a good system, and if somebody else can benefit that, especially in a in a community house that uh, that might not get a, a a good lighting designer in all the time, um, it might just have a director who's doing his own lighting design, um, and leaving him with something something good is. Uh, it doesn't cost me anything. No. Well, I can, uh, you know, when I opened up the uh, York University, the two theaters there, and it was designed uh, by Liz Asselstein. I don't know if you know, she, she's a professor at York University. And um, okay. there was a few um, hiccups along the way because she wanted to light our recital hall like a theater. And our recital halls are, they can't be mood lit. You can't light them with mood. You have to just put beams of light in places. And make sure that they're easily, you know, especially it's somewhat of a roadhouse, really, when you start dealing with where all the areas are. And, you know, we had three, we wanted three pools of light that were got smaller to bigger. And you know, we're trying to make it simple as possible because there's a knucklehead like me operating them at, most of the time. So, and I, I learned a lot from lights at that point because I, I realized that, okay, I've been doing sound for 20 years or 15 years at that point, 20 years. And... I needed to figure this out, and I was proud of myself because I learned how to use a strand board, you know, and I learned how yeah. to program lights, and I became a better technician because I understood more about what other people did. But Liz just couldn't, she couldn't handle all the limitations she was put up against, and she wanted to make art, and unfortunately, sometimes you just gotta, you just gotta hang it up and make sure it works, you know, and, and yeah. you can understand her, her, uh, her anger, or whatever, her frustration at least. Oh, definitely. I, I mean, it's it's all about sort of framing, uh, to me anyway, framing the what the project is going to be. Like, the way I go into a, a, a corporate lighting design gig is very different than, you know, how I go into a, a, a theater gig or, if mm-hmm. you know, if that theater gig is with a, uh, an educational institution. Mm-hmm. Like, I know that my lighting design is going to be different. Uh, walking into a room like that. And a corporate gig, they often don't care what you do. They just don't want you to spend more than you have, mm-hmm. and it better look cool. Yeah. But they don't care about it, about, you know, uh, 
mood or, mm. or composition or, you know, they want it to look expensive and that's, and that's fine. That's a part of the job and, and frankly, frankly, it's a fun part yeah. when you have that kind of money to play around with and then that sort of, that sort of freedom. Um, and, and yeah, sometimes you, all somebody is asking of you is like, I need one perfect cue because we're not going to have an operator on the show and that's sort of the more mm-hmm. um, industrial design like industrial lighting design that you, I do sometimes, especially with some of my site-specific work, is sometimes we're not bringing in operators to operate shows. We're just coming into a space and making it look as appropriate as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we're turning on the lights before the audience comes in, and we're turning them off after they leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, and as long as you sort of know and you're aware of, like, okay, this is what the process is going to be, and this is what ultimately they want from me, um, you then then you're not brokenhearted when mm-hmm. when somebody says like oh well we can't actually do cues and here you you've planned to do <laughs> you've put all that work hundreds in. yeah 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 exactly yeah uh, where are you on the on the um on the uh the approach of automation where um lights can be triggered from audio cues and audio cues can tr- you know lights can be triggered by a sound cue or midi or you know like would you would you like to do you work? You must work a little bit in automation when someone hits a go button and it all, like the show. Has has you ever done one from start to finish where it just starts and then? Um, I've I've never designed a sh- uh, designed a show for that that was all on time code. For example, that just started and finished mm-hmm. and all happened auto- um, uh, automized, automated, <laughs> automized, automized. Um, automized. Uh, I've I've worked as as a stage manager on on shows like that, and they're uh, well, they're super easy to call. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but but, uh, but I've been doing it a lot more um, uh, of late, especially with the, I just did a show where the it was a site specific show, and the operators were in a little office. It was in an old abandoned funeral home, and uh, the That's operators the show I worked sound on. and lights. I did the, I did the three D printing on that one, right? Yes, yes, that's yeah, the yeah, one. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. So in that show, our, our sound and our lighting operators were in a little office on the third floor, and uh, and we were using the whole building, the basement and the other three floors, uh, for scenes. And, and we had microphones in each room, but no uh, but no cameras, which was uh, which was a challenge. It was just a budget limitation. We sort of decided, okay, well, we need the mics for sure. We'll find a way to do it without cameras. So we. Uh, uh, so yeah, a lot of the cues had to be timed out and 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 figured out to happen automatically. Mm. And right now, I'm working on another site-specific show that will be similar in that way. We're going to try and do as much of it with time code as we can. Um, but the reality is, is some stuff just needs to happen at a specific point. And as once you bring um, performers into the mix, like it's always easier with something like dance, yeah. because it's because you've got um, their primary focus is on space and timing as as dancers um, yeah. when you're when you're using musicians and actors um, there's a there's a there's a margin for error that's much wider because you're allowing for other things you're allowing for um, collaboration between you and your scene partner and and there's physical environment things and lines and audience interaction and mm-hmm. and that has sort of made this this uh, show that I'm working on now um, we're going to need a bunch of systems of control. Uh, the, I'd say the, the part I use the most um, in, in terms of time code is I'll often do entire musical numbers. 
uh, like within a five-minute number, I may have 150 cues, and a stage manager may call the beginning and the end, and that's it. Um, that's a lot easier when it's track-based. Yeah. It's, you know, you're starting a track. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just doesn't work with live music. No. Either, right? Like, it, you need it. You need to have somebody um, looking at the sheet music or or watching the the performance, hitting those button cues um, for yeah. you. Uh, yeah. Unless you go, I feel like it's easier to go time codes start to finish mm. than to do the little sections like I I've, I've been doing. But yeah, everybody's got to be on board. Like yeah. sound directors, actors, everybody's got to hit those marks perfectly. Yep. And with these short tech processes that we've been talking about, it's just uh, it's unlikely. Yeah. That it's going to go that way. But there's also well, people are getting creative. You know, people yeah. are using um, like on this this show I'm working on now. We're looking at sensors, yeah. so that instead of needing a camera in the room, waiting for a character to open a door and let the audience in, um, using sensors so that when that door opens, it starts a cue stack, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's you know most of the cues are fairly soft and flowy, so that kind of works. Yeah. But then you know inside that room. Your operator may only have to listen for, you know, one word to hit that one button cue, and that can start another stack. So, I mean, yeah. it, it just changes how you design it. Yeah, I like the fact when you say when the door opens, it starts a, it starts things because you could get that, you could get that going. My, my concern, or the reason I asked about automation, is sometimes when we're talking about theater, how it's live and people are interacting not just with each other but with the audience, with the, the their surroundings, their acting it could suck the life right out of it. And then all of a sudden you're watching a TV show with people in front, you know, or, yeah. you know, I, I think there is a way to do it. You know, there is a way to do, because um, I don't know if you're familiar, there's a software called QLab. But oh, yeah. it, it, they're, they're, QLab 4 does lights now. So they're starting to get and, into that part of it. So And and does it do it via MIDI MIDI signal? That's how I've done it before. Yeah. Is I've you send get QLab to send the MIDI signal it, to it speaks DMX. It speaks oh, that. Oh, it speaks DMX. Yeah, That's awesome. so you'll be able to you'll be able to program everything by a cue by hitting. You know, we're we're pro, we're actually experimenting at work about like if I hit this this next on my uh, on my my digital board, I want it to hit go on the QLab system. But then that could send time signal, or you're saying it could send a sysx file, which is MIDI, back to the lighting board, and we could just all be going at the same time, you know. And we're yeah. we're doing it for selfish reasons because we just wanted to make it easier for us. We're not we're not trying, <laughs> you know what I mean? We're not yeah. trying to make life, uh, you know, exciting. We're trying to make life easier. But um, but the- what it what it does allow you to do, and especially with this show I'm working on right now, the first time we did it, it was a show. Um, it was a show. Uh, yeah, different show. I did a show called Brantwood. Um, and it took place, it was with the cast of, um, of Sheridan's musical theater program, and we did it in an abandoned high school, and there were 16 operators, each operating lights and sound for their three rooms, essentially. Like, somebody would be handling the north hallway, mm-hmm. and the science room, and the English room. And they would have to watch on three cameras, three, three rooms, and call all of these, these cues, and they had individual cue stacks and everything. And uh, the cues had to be fairly simple, mm-hmm. and a lot of things had to be tied together, lights and sound, um, via, via MIDI, just because there was such a volume of, of material that, like, we made it, we made the operation simpler by tying the two things together in some cases, but it wasn't so they could, 
you know, sit back and knit <laughs> or, you know, sit their, their, you know, their big gulps. It was, it was so they could focus on other things, other more important things happening yeah. at that exact same time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think as long as it, um, and that is sort of what's great about, about automation is that it can take some of the, um, the simpler things, things that are very easy for a lighting designer to do, like a lighting designer to listen to a song and time their cues out. I mean, that's, it's, it's fun and it's easy and it's great and you can do it from home, which is like an inherent difficulty with lighting design in general. Mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. that lighting design can only happen in the theater. I mean, they make a whole bunch of pre-visualization programs like HOG and that yeah. kind of stuff, but they're, they're just not effective enough for theater. Mm-hmm. I think they, work, they can work well for uh, roadhouses and rock shows because, again, it's that sort of broad stroke, yeah. timing it to the music, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But when it comes to the, the finesse, I think, that theater requires... Um, Looking at a 3D model on the screen and doing your lighting cues, it just doesn't work. It's a very, it's a very, it's still very magical to me. As long as yeah. I've been doing, as long as I've been doing it, I find lighting. I'm consistently surprised and amazed by electricity and and by lighting, mm-hmm. um, and just being, yeah. You can you can create theories, you can do formulas, you can do the math, your watts, your ohms, your everything. But like until you're in there with that light and that bulb and that gel. You uh, and you see what it's actually supposed to be hitting. Um, mm-hmm. You you don't know. Like you have to you have to be flexible on the yeah. fly to sort of uh, yeah change it and be creative. I think virtual virtual reality is going to uh, excel in this format, not just for oh, yeah. not just for design, but for audience experience watching music or watching shows uh, in your living room that is being performed live that can be projected somehow where you can actually look around and see the lights and get that you know that that understanding the one thing you won't get though is that you when you're in a theater you know you're in a theater because you feel that just the space you don't hear the walls around you you'd hear this big space you're in they'll figure yeah. that out they'll figure it out somehow where you know i could be sitting oh, sure. here we'll put on virtual reality glasses look around go and then the play will start and it's in it's live and somehow we're watching this and somehow i'll look over and you're there we're like hey we're in the same you know what i mean hello you know what i mean we look around like you're yeah. in the theater you go, oh there's there's nick over there there he is you know oh, wave man. and then you wave back and then you know, somebody makes a big coughing sound and somehow that gets put on, you know, it's just all going to happen. You know, we're going to be there. Yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure. I mean, I'm amazed actually at how immersive the 360 videos actually make you feel. I mean, yeah. they're not, they're, they're not a replacement. And I think as long as, as I would like to continue in, in this sort of biz and, and I hope that people don't, uh, don't see it as a replacement. I mean, that was sort of the thing when projection design really um, leaped uh, into popularity was it was it was a replacement for set or replacement for lights yeah and then and they realized that that actually wasn't that effective no um, and <laughs> no, I feel no, like no. the same thing is going to happen for virtual reality is it's like yes how can we use this yeah. how can we use it to add to an experience to benefit and you know an existing sort of mm-hmm. style and that's that's not to say that I don't think theater is going to change uh, but I, I do feel like um, yeah, I would, I would hate to, I would hate to lose some of that stuff that you're talking about, that hearing the audience react is yeah. a huge part of theater, and it's, it's my favorite thing to do on opening, is sit at the back, off to the side, so that I can watch the audience watch the show, and yeah. I think the more we 
we we try to push theater to be more accessible in in the way of you know you can watch the you know opera performances uh, at the Met. Yeah. You can watch them from home. Um, I think the more we're going to lose that, and the, and I think those it's. It's great to have that opportunity to watch those things, but I hope it doesn't become a replacement yeah. of, of what is a, a very visceral and enjoyable experience. I mean, numbers are up. Um, I mean, I kind of know this just from being a part of the Associated Designers of Canada, but attendance numbers are up uh, in theater, mm. higher than they've been in the last five years. Now, that's not very long, but... Um, for the last 15 years, I've been hearing like, oh, nobody goes to see theater anymore. And uh, it was great to actually see some numbers and, and, and go, wait, people are coming back. People are seeing this like they are getting tired of binge watching Netflix at home. Like, yeah. and, and I mean, I'm, I still binge watch Netflix at home, but it, like, it isn't a replacement. Mm-hmm. It's something else to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, I understand your plight because the same thing happened with music when, you know, people thought the 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 CD is going to kill music or the DVD, the D, live DVD. Right. And also it in fact it actually it kicked it in the ass cuz when the the numbers started dropping, people started putting more money into their production and then all of a sudden big tours were going out and making money again. Or that was the only way you could, you know, watch a big spectacle and uh and even with movies, when you talk about movies, when before surround sound and the movies were just a little thing you sat in, and, and, and then when the VHS came out, it killed movies. Movies died yeah. until they got on board and said, wait a minute, we're going to have like big comfy seats, we're going to have big sound, we're going to have this and that. So they stepped up the game, and people are watching yeah. movies again, because they're sick and tired of sitting in their living room. Everything has a circle effect, you know, and we're, we're getting there now, we're... Hopefully, people are like, yeah, I want to go out and see live music again. Or it could just be generational. Like our age group now is at, at this age group where we're actually, we don't, like I have kids and, and, and I couldn't go out for like 10 years. And now we could almost go out now. Like, so yeah. my life is becoming a thing, where, let's go do something. And so I don't know. There's a lot of things in play there, you know, and, uh, and I, I know you have a, you have a, you have a something to do tonight. So I don't want to take too much more of your time, but, uh, I uh I, I enjoyed talking to you when we when we did that thing in June. Was it June? I can't remember it was. I meant June. Uh, you know what? I don't remember. It feels like ages did, ago. But, when we did um, it last year. It was fun to talk, you know, and it's fun, interesting to see like, you know, like you know, you, you're doing you're, you're you're making something artistically and you're you're out doing it and you're making a living on it and that is that's powerful stuff to people who don't do that. Does that make sense? Like I, uh, no, it makes you know it makes total sense. Um, my brother, uh, my brother, you should know is is a is a musician, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and me being a, a designer. I mean, we both survive by doing our art, mm-hmm. and we both do it exclusively in a way. Like we, you know, we we don't have other other jobs that mm-hmm. that sort of really supplement us. We make our living based on that thing, and I and I I want people to sort of see that that is. Uh, yeah, that that is is success in in our in our field. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? That yeah, you yeah. that being a star, being famous, is not like it's not actually the 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 drive for for most of us to do this. It's uh, it's a it's you know it's a badge of honor to sort of be working in your field and and being happy with it. And and that's not to say that it's, you're always happy doing it because mm-hmm. you know it, it does it does pay very well. It pays less 
than you'd like, yeah. as I'm sure everybody would say about all their jobs. But um, but it's doing doing art is is hard, and making money at it is awesome. Mm-hmm. So if you can do that, um, you uh, you're doing well, <laughs> I guess. Absolutely, and there's nothing wrong with supplementing your work with absolutely, with no. other work. Absolutely, um, I've a lot of people I know um, go out and get what we call in the the real job, and the real job takes them further away from the art part of it. So it's really tough yeah. to try and you know, and then so that then the the, the I guess the paradox is they're going to be washing dishes so they can work in their art, you know. But yeah. but that's unfortunately that's what happens. So it really does weed out the people, you know, because I've been doing this for a long time and you've been doing it a long time, and it does weed out the people who come in guns a blazing and then lose heart because they're not making money. And that is a, you know, you're going to work ten years yeah. your whole life not making a penny to maybe hopefully yeah. the next twenty years of your life actually making a paycheck and. You know, I, well, uh, we crossed over. Fine, <laughs> yeah, well, I'd like to think so. Yeah. I, I mean, there's also a fine balance, too. Like, I remember my first year out of university, I did, um, I wasn't uh, I wasn't doing a lot of lighting design right out of university. I was a lot more focused on set and costume, but I did uh, I did 17 shows my first year of school, which it, for set and costume is a lot. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to do that many shows in a year. As a lighting designer, you can do it because your residency is like a third of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I had to do that many to you know pay my bills. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there were people who that I went to school with that would do like four shows a year, uh, and they would do a part-time job somewhere else or a full-time job even, and they were able to really devote creatively to those you know four shows. Yeah, I see. Um, whereas I was splitting all of that creative energy um, between the seven between the seventeen. You know, and there's and it was fine. It worked out great. That was actually what I needed out of school. And frankly, because I was right out of school, I had a lot of creativity to a creative energy to spread around. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But like I know now, being older, like I can't, I couldn't do 17 shows a year. I don't have the the same amount of energy that I I had then. Mm-hmm. So you know, I do about eight. I would say I do about eight shows a year. Some of them are lights. Some of them are set. Some of them are costume. Yeah. And and I have to ration energy throughout the year to make sure that I save enough for that six week residency, that big musical at the end, that big, you know, whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you got to take a little break also. Yeah. Uh, That's tricky to do as a freelancer, right? Oh, true. Oh, very. And well, sometimes you take a break and you really don't want to take a break. (laughs) You're forced to take a break by the virtue of not having anything important to do. Yeah. Hence Um, the feast or famine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, but no, it's it you just you sort of have to adjust, mm-hmm. uh, and and it's not all it's not about one season anymore. I find too, mm-hmm. when I first got out of school, it was all about like what do I have next for this season. Yeah. Now I have to be thinking because I'm working on much bigger projects. Yeah. I have to be thinking two or three years ahead often. And you're your own so, manager, right? You don't. Yeah, have, you have just, an agent or a manager me. or anybody, right? No, no. Uh, it's just it's just me. I mean, I. I have sometimes get represented for specific things yeah. um, when I'm going in on with a group on something, um, but but no, it's just it's just me. I mean, my work with the uh, Association of Designers, um, I've spent a lot of time going over the contracts and helping with the rewrites and that kind of stuff, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I understand them really well. 
and uh, and and the and just being on the board, uh, I feel like I help my own career yeah. than putting it in the hands of, of somebody else. Um, th- that being said, there are a lot more the- theater design agents out there now. Um, yeah. There are people who have recognized it as a as a need for the for the industry, and there are more people offering that service. So, like, mm-hmm. I would recommend it. Yeah. To uh, I would recommend it to others. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Photographers have them. Artists have them. Musicians have them. I don't understand because it's tough to wear several hats in this in this business because sometimes yeah. sometimes you got to be a dick. Sometimes you gotta you gotta put the hammer absolutely. down. And if you're that guy yeah. who's who's a dick, then that turns into oh, he's hard to work with. I believe I, I know this firsthand as a musician manager. I manage my own music career, and I don't do that anymore because I used to yell and scream for what was right, and now I'm hard to work yeah. with. <laughs> so yeah, no, it's it's very that's fair. It's absolutely true. Um, and I would say uh, what used to on a show, I used to maybe work. Let's say I worked three weeks on a show. Uh, way more than that, but. In that three weeks, I would spend two and a half weeks designing it, like mm. doing the actual design work of it, and I would spend another half week doing all of the other things, like contracts and meetings and negotiations and that kind of stuff. I find now I work on a show for, uh, well, twice as long, uh, so, so yeah, six weeks, but I would say I still don't spend more time designing it. I still only get two, two weeks, really, to do the design yeah. work. I just spend a lot more time with contracts, with negotiations, and managing teams of people now, yeah. too. Where, yeah. again, when you're starting out, it's it's just you. You're designing it, and you're probably building it, too. Yeah. Um, now it's it's a lot more uh, managing a group of, of people to sort of make something like that happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate you uh, giving me the 3D printing uh, gig. Uh, you, you basically oh. vouched for me. I, I appreciate that. And, you know, I learned a lot from that, too, you know, so... It's it's funny at this tender age of forty six, uh, how I can learn stuff from experience, you know, and you know, and, and I, you know, thank you because that that is something that needs to be said. That this is how we work in this business. It's all about hey, this guy's okay, he's a good guy, get this guy in or whatever. And that was that's what I got from that. So you know, thanks oh, for that, man. That was that was that was very cool. No, I should be I should be thanking you when it came up in the show uh, to provide some context for your listeners. Mm. Uh, you know, this show we needed sixteen, I think sixteen. Sixteen, yeah. Objects, object, objects printed, and and aesthetically, they wanted them to be translucent and blue. Uh, blue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we needed them printed, and they were all like softball-ish sized. Yeah. And uh, and when I saw the budget for it, and I was the lighting designer, so I was like not involved in these objects at all. Yeah. Um, but uh, when I saw the budget for it, and I was like, "You guys are in trouble." <laughs> like 3D printing is a really valuable service, and there aren't enough people that do it. That um, that it's a sort of supply and demand thing yeah. that would make the price lower, right? Like it's still a yeah. very special. Uh, um, skill and yeah. and also uh, machine. Uh, and, uh, but I had seen the stuff that you'd, uh, printed and you'd mentioned that you were having fun, yeah. fun with it. And I think anybody who's, who's having, having fun with a toy they've got at home, it will, uh, might be interested in, yes. in another excuse to use it. Absolutely. Um, so no, I, I thank you for, for doing that for it, us. It, it was ran worth f- a lot more than what we oh, were able to give you. It ran for three weeks straight. I was getting up at like four in the morning 
I was in. The, I know you can't see the little closet in there. I've I've moved it into, and I like wake up and I'm like, I think it's done. And I like go downstairs and it's still. Bzz, 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 and he's like ninety nine percent. So I got to sit there and look at the thing. Okay, okay, finish, finish. So I can go back to bed so I can start a new print. Like it was bad. Oh, like one thing I learned about this is, and you probably you're probably yeah okay. That's what I should have done in the first place. Is it's got to be an hourly rate and a per day system. Like if you want sixteen things, you need to have. 16 days allotted to make these things. And at the same time, you need to have it set at least two weeks before you even get in a tech run. This is, and all the, all the prints that I did, some of them weren't even like laying flat. So I'd have to like redesign them. And it was a lot of work, but I learned a lot from that. And, you know, I'm not scared to take on more work from it. You know what I mean? So I know now going into this, like, oh, there's going to be a hiccup. There's going to be a learning curve along the way, you know? But I I was like, I was proud of the mask. Did we I made this mask. Oh yeah, the mask was super cool. That was a 30-hour print. And yeah. if it failed on the third on the 29th hour, I had, I would have to start all over again. And luckily it went in one. It was a full face mask. And you know what? It kind of pissed me off cuz I look at the set and it was hanging. There was nobody wore the mask. Well, so, yeah, somebody in the show like they they held it to their face. They they didn't like wear it like Oh uh, yeah, like and a take mask. their hands away, but yeah. like they sort of held it in front of their face like okay. a like a mask. But. Okay, good. Well, then. <laughs> so so yeah, I hope that it helps appease appease you a little bit. But it was really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and it worked. Yeah, it worked just brilliantly. Yeah. Well, that's good. Well, I appreciate you. I think you got something to do now. You got to go out to. Um... I, I do. I got to go to a fundraiser that's that's very late in the in the evening. Well, but, I, uh... well, thanks for doing the show, Nick, and um, good luck to you. And let's you know hopefully work together again in the in the in the near future and. Uh... No, I would like that very much. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on your show. There he was, Nick Blay, on the Apple Podcast. See, see, you can work in this business and you can carry on. You just, you just got to keep going. That's this business. <laughs> you got to work for nothing for ten years and then you finally get paid. That was a great conversation with my friend Nick Blay. He's now my friend. So I've got all the way through seventy odd minutes of that, and I realized, you know what? We're friends. We're buds buds and so thanks for listening to the show everybody also don't forget to go to um, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes okay go to iTunes search out Apple Lock Podcast rate and review the show tell a friend it really helps out don't forget about my Amazon affiliate program by going to applelock.ca slash Amazon if you're an American or UK you can actually just go to that home page click on that banner on that link help the show out Don't forget about my Patreon thing. Everybody, next week, next week is another surprise because I haven't finished it yet, but it's going to be a good show. I just finished, actually just recorded it. I can't tell you what it is yet because I want to make sure that this this episode gets all its glory. But next week's episode was a fun, awesome, mind-blowing experience, and that's all I can say about that. So I hope you all come back next week, listen to the show, rate, don't forget to tell your friends. Tell your friends it's important. Don't forget about audibletrial.com. I am now blathering. We'll see you next week. Bye.